Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. As we approach the end, at this point, what would you say will be some of the takeaways for you? Some of the things that you'll remember uh, that God taught you through this experience studying this book together. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, put all your faith in God. I like that. I, I've been thinking recently, I may have shared this thought with you a couple of weeks ago. When we get to the end of our life, I don't know what it will be like exactly, but um, it will be interesting if we almost, I picture, it's probably not going to go down this way, but I almost picture watching game film with Jesus, like looking back over the course of our lives, you know? And I think what we will probably most frequently say, if you watched the story of your life on video with Jesus, what do you think you would most frequently say? <laughs> I'm sorry comes to mind. Yeah. I think I'm sorry will be the second thing we most frequently say. I think the thing we will most often say is, ah, I wish I would have trusted you more in that moment. I wish I would have tr- I wish I, I wish I just could have somehow believed that you actually knew what you were doing, you know? I wish I had done more. Yeah, yeah. But I don't even think it will be so much. There will be an element of that, no question. Could have done more. But I think more so, more often than not. Because I think, I wish I would have trusted you more encompasses the moments when we could have done some good that we didn't do. Or the moments when we shouldn't have done some dumb that we did do, you know. It all comes back to faith. So good. That's a great takeaway from this story. What else? Yeah. There never was a plan B. There never was a plan B. Amen. Yeah, no doubt. I just got through in, um, some of you were with us last spring when we studied Romans in here. And I just got through Romans 9 through 11 in class this semester, last week. And that's where Paul, after, you know, on the other side of Jesus, on the other side of the gospel of Jesus, where God saves all sinners, Jew and Gentile, same way, by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. And then he has to answer the question. So if God saves us all this way, apart from the law... How can we say that God is faithful to his promises to Israel? And in Romans 9 through 11, Paul specifically addresses this question. And the, the dominant idea of that whole big, hairy, you know, contorted section is Jesus was always God's plan. In five words, that's Romans 5, 9 through 11. Jesus was always God's plan. And you see the seeds of that even now as you walk through this. God knew what he was doing. Good. Okay, others. Yeah, talent. I think this is an excellent study on God's sovereignty. Yes. Yeah, that's hilarious. Are you, you, you don't know where we're going tonight, do you? That's, did you? He said it's an excellent study on God's sovereignty and his faithfulness. I just want you to remember that. Um, put that in your back pocket. As one of my teachers used to say, put that in your back pocket. We'll save it for later. Good. What else? Others? Yes. You got two. I like it. Okay, he will follow through. Yeah, I like that even. I like that definition of faithfulness. We're going to try to define faithfulness in as many different ways as there are people in the room, and that's a pretty good one, that God will follow through. Good, yes? What we already said this before when we were doing the first part of Genesis, but how much Jesus is woven into yes. the beginning. Like, wow. It's all about him. No doubt, no doubt. Even, even in Joseph's story, some of the stranger elements, um, I think in part point forward to Jesus. Uh, even, you know, the, there's a minor character in Joseph's story, you know, Judah, his older brother, 
who is the fourth son. Seems like it wouldn't be very important, but he actually is for various reasons. So, okay, good. Yeah, so far for me, I'll, I'll be good and answer the question. I promise I didn't think about this beforehand until I just asked you. The time is the takeaway for me. How long it would have been to actually experience these things. That when we're looking at the story from this view, and we know not only all of Genesis 12 through 50, but the rest of the story of the entirety of Scripture, we can just sort of skip along and it almost seems like they went from God experience to God experience to God experience, when in reality there's often 5, 10, 20, 25 years in between these moments. And that has been the major takeaway for me and patiently working through the stories of their lives is seeing that, that uh, it may seem quick from the top view, but when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't seem quick, does it? It makes you wonder what uh, God was doing in someone else's life that never got recorded. It's true. It's true. You know, you think about what John says at the end of his gospel. If we had written all the things that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain the stories. And certainly, you think you back that up to all of what God's been doing since the beginning of time. Yeah, there'd be no way. Maybe those would be the stories that we get to hear for all eternity. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes when you look at read Genesis, it just makes you think of, you know, what I do can have an impact yes. on so many people. Yeah. Even the little things. And and you know, it's like, whoa, did way that a bigger piece too in that what we do is it's huge, yeah. So if you didn't hear her point, she was saying, you know, one of the things she's noticed, and, and I'll, I'll try to summarize what you said with the main statement right there in the middle, that the, the big impact of the little things that we do. That actually was one of the points that got cut out of my, out of my uh, lesson tonight as I was trying to think, what are the major truths that would pull away from Joseph's life? I think I landed on three, and the fourth one was the big impact of little decisions. Um, so we may end up talking about that a little bit more, but I'm glad you mentioned it right now because I see that in Joseph's life for sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's crazy when you think about it. It's one of those things, like we've done a couple of times in here, how, you know, we pay, to, pay attention to the fact that you've been breathing all day long. The sort of, and often I'll think, I'll, I'll do that with the, the idea that we're in God's presence. But I think there's something similar to having the Bible, having the living Word of God available to us to tell us what God, the, the, that God brought all this into existence and then He bound it in a book over the course of millennia and then gave it to us and we just let Him collect dust on our shelves sometimes, you know? It's crazy. It really is. Okay, wonderful. Good. Well, let me pray for us and then we're going to actually watch a quick little video together and then we'll progress through Joseph's story. Father God, bless our evening if you would. Uh, we know you want to. We know you will actually. We pray with confidence that you'll be faithful to bless as you have promised. And so we pray that you would bless us in ways that we can see and in ways that we cannot help us to trust that you are indeed active in our lives and through our lives um, and help this study of Genesis to continue being uh, uh, probably a small part of the uh, things that you're doing in our lives, but nevertheless a significant one. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight and tomorrow, I want to show you a couple of video overviews of the book of Genesis. Um, they are from, um, I can't remember the name, I should remember the name of the website. I'll tell you, I'll tell you next week. But basically, I want to show them to you because they're, they're good. This, tonight's is like a four-minute overview of Genesis 12 through 50, and then the same group of people did like a seven-minute overview uh, that just kind of an illustrated, uh, narrated guide to the book. 
And I want to show it to you, one, because we're covering 13 chapters today, 14 chapters today, which is a lot of material, and therefore I'll paraphrase most of it. I won't be reading much of the actual words of the text. Um, So I want us to get a visual overview before I give you another overview. And then second reason is I want you to know that these videos are out there, and there's this group who do this, who have done it for pretty much the whole of all the different books of the Bible, and they're supremely helpful. So I'll get you the link next week. For now, we'll just, uh, we'll just turn on and give you a shot. So this is um, a four-and-a-half-minute overview of Genesis 12 through 50. After this, we'll talk back through the Joseph story and then pull some lessons out from it. You ready, Zach? All right. We're walking through the book of Genesis, which is made up of these two main parts. And the first part begins in the garden where we watch humanity spiral downward in self-destruction. And it ends in the Tower of Babel where a rebellious humanity is scattered by God. Then the second part of Genesis zooms in and focuses on just one family. And right in the middle is this story that links the two parts of Genesis together and helps us understand what the whole book is all about. So how do we get from the Tower of Babel to the story here in the middle? Well, after the scattering at Babel, there's this genealogy, and it follows one of the tribes all the way down to this one guy named Abram. You probably know him as Abraham. And God starts making all these promises to Abraham, like he's going to bless him and give him a ton of kids. And he says that through him and his family, all the nations of the earth are now going to find God's blessing. So basically, God is trying to restore humanity back to the goodness of the garden and to his original intentions for the world. So it's like his rescue plan for humanity. And that's why the whole second half of Genesis is about this one family. And so you have, you have Abraham, and then he has a son, Isaac, who has Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. And to each generation, God renews his promise to bless them and all nations through them. So because of this promise to use this family to rescue the world, it's pretty easy to read these stories as examples of how to be a good person. But actually, for the most part, this family is totally dysfunctional. So for example, let's go back to Abraham. This whole story is about God giving him and his wife Sarah a family, but two different times. He basically gives Sarah away to other men by denying that she's even his wife. And then Sarah gets impatient about having a son, and so she makes Abraham sleep with her servant girl, which then causes all of these other problems in the family. So they get really old, and you begin to think that there's no way they're going to have a kid of their own. But then, miraculously, they do. It's Isaac. And Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and it seems like things are going pretty good. But Jacob... The younger brother wants the family's inheritance, which belongs to Esau, the older brother. So he devises a plan where he's going to steal it from his father, Isaac, who at this point in the story is now old and blind. Which who does that horrible stealing from your blind father? Yeah, and then he just takes off. So Jacob goes on from there to have 12 sons, big family. But Jacob loves his 11th son, Joseph, way more than all the others. And so he gives him the special technicolor dream coat. And his brothers, because of this, come to hate him. So much so that they plan on killing him. But they don't. They instead just sell him as a slave down in Egypt. Now, while in Egypt, through this crazy series of events, Joseph goes from being in a prison cell to becoming the second in command there. And so later on, the the whole Middle East falls into this food shortage. And Joseph's brothers, they come down to Egypt looking for food. And then when they get there, who should they find as the ruler of the whole land? It's Joseph. 
that guy they sold into slavery. But he actually saves them from starving to death. And so here you have it. These are the great-grandchildren of Abraham who have done this heinous act to their brother. But God has transformed their evil into something good. And that's exactly what Joseph says here in the last paragraph of the entire book. He says, you guys planned all of this for evil, but God planned it for good to save people's lives. Now, these words, they conclude the book because they actually summarize the message of the whole story so far. Humans keep choosing evil, and we are thinking they're, they're screwing up God's plan, but he keeps turning their evil back into good. And somehow, he's going to use this family to restore humanity back to the garden. So, that's the book of Genesis. But we still don't know how exactly he's going to use this family to bring us back to the garden. Well, yeah, but this is just the first book. So that's what the rest of the Bible sets out. To- All right, so pr- pretty good, uh, there you go, pretty good layout of the book of Genesis chapters 12 through 50. I dispute a little bit with the maybe overemphasis on how bad of a guy Jacob was, but I'm not trying to defend him too much, so I think it's probably Okay. Now, here's what I want to do now. That gives us the big picture overview. I want to walk through the Joseph portion of the life. You notice how they're like, and through a crazy series of events, he went from being in prison to being second in command. Let's talk about that crazy series of events a little bit. So we're going to tell this in two parts, uh, just walking through the story. You're welcome to try to follow along in your Bible as we go. I'd encourage you for the most part to just sort of try to listen and, uh, and, you know, hear, hear the, the, can't talk about all the details, but, but kind of walk with me through the narrative a little bit. And then just so you know, when we get to the end, I'm going to be asking you a couple of questions. One is, um, main question, if you could be a fly on the wall for just one scene in this story, which one would it be and why? Like, which one would you just love to be able to go back and watch? And then secondly, if you, I'm going to ask you this question of the book of Genesis as a whole next week, which character in the story would you be? But for now, just within the narrative of Joseph's life, if you could think, okay, that's probably the character I'd be. Maybe it's just, you know, another prisoner watching this go down. I don't know. Uh, but be thinking about where you might see yourself in the story. The first part of the story I'm going to call Joseph's roller coaster ride because it really seems like he goes from top to bottom to top to bottom to top. I mean, there's a lot of up and down and up and down and up and down. So what happens? Well, the story starts in Genesis 37. Uh, Joseph himself is 17 years old. And the first thing we know is that he gives a bad report about all of his older brothers. And they don't like this very much. Who would, right? So they're kind of sour on Joseph. And to make matters worse, he is the favorite son of their father, Jacob. Jacob loves him. And so he gives him this coat. Now, I hate to burst the bubble of, you know, all of the fun things we've done with Joseph's coat, but it's not actually likely that it was a mini-colored coat. Probably what it was was a long-sleeved jacket. So that's a little bit more boring than having super colorful things. And there's a chance that it was, I suppose, colorful, but in the original language, it just says something like fancy or ornate. And the idea probably was the rest of the guys had short sleeves, and he gave Joseph a long-sleeved jacket. But this long-sleeved jacket was symbolic of his favor on Joseph. He loved him more than the rest of his sons, and everybody knew it. So this is kind of the reality that they're living with. And meanwhile, Joseph has these dreams, which for him are really cool. And so, you know, being a teenager, he has a really cool thought of how awesome he's going to be. And he decides to share it. In the first dream, Joseph is like a, like a stalk. He's like a grain stalk. And he says all of his brothers are as well. And yet in the dream, all of the other stalks bow down before him and worship. Seriously? You bend a knee? We're going to bend a knee to you? And he's like, yeah, 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 but wait, there's another one. Check this out. I had this other dream where like like the sun, moon, and stars bow down before me and like the sun, moon, and stars represent you guys. How crazy is that? 
And so they, I mean, you can imagine how they're not a super fan of Joseph, but Joseph is in some sense top of the world. He's clearly favored by his human father. And so far as he can tell from these dreams, he believes that God is telling him that he will have God himself, like the heavenly father is telling him that he will have a particular place in the plan. Well, as you can imagine, and as you know, this doesn't go over very well with the brothers. So one time Joseph's brothers are all out tending the flocks and Jacob sends Joseph to go and check on them, just see how they're doing. So he goes out to find him and he kind of meanders around and gets to where they are and they see him coming and they say, look, it's that dreamer, our brother, let's kill him. And Reuben, actually the oldest, is like, no, let's not kill him, okay? He's our brother, let's just throw him in a well. So they throw him in a well and uh, Reuben's plan is to come back a little bit later on and take him out and deliver him back to dad. Uh, But in the meantime, I guess he's not around at the time when they see that some slave traders are rolling by and they're thinking to themselves, here's our out. So they sell the son. They sell Joseph to these slave traders, and he's taken away. Reuben comes back, and he's like, what'd you do? And they're like, oh, we didn't kill him. We just sent him off. And so they have this long sleeve jacket slash technicolor dream coat slash coat of many colors slash whatever else you want to call it. And they think to themselves, we got to come up with a plan. So they kill an animal. They dip this thing in the blood of the animal. They go back home. They lie to Jacob. Oh, your son, you sent him to us to find us. And unfortunately, he was attacked by a wild animal and killed. Look, This is all we found. He was dragged away, and we don't know what happened. Jacob is heartbroken by this, but not as sad as Joseph is, who's now sitting right in jail um, as a result of being, or he's not sitting in jail. He He is sold as a slave at this point as a result of his brother's actions. Now, there's a weird detail in the book of Genesis that never makes it into the broad retellings because it seems out of nowhere. We get introduced to Joseph. And we go from top to bottom, and then we're just sort of pausing the story of Joseph, and we hear another story. You know what the other story is that comes in Genesis 37? Judah and Tamar. It's one of the weirdest stories in the Old Testament, especially because it just sort of seems like it comes out of nowhere. And the reason why it's in there is actually it's a contrast story. And it is designed to show us the difference between Joseph and his older brothers, So in some sense, this story is a part of Joseph going from bottom back to the top. So here's the story. Judah is, um, again, fourth son of Jacob, and he has three sons of his own. His oldest son marries Tamar, but uh, his oldest son's a bad guy, and so God puts him to death. I don't know how bad he was, but apparently pretty bad. The second son is supposed to, according to their law, give Tamar a son, give Tamar a a child so that she'll have somebody to take care of her. It's called Leverite marriage because Leverite's from the Latin word for brother-in-law. So according to their customs at the time, the second son is supposed to give her descendants. He doesn't. He spills his seed on the ground because he too is evil and he doesn't want to take care of her. And so God puts him to death. So then there's the younger son, and Judah says to Tamar, just wait a while, okay? Let my youngest son come of age, and then I'll give him to you as well. Except then the young son comes of age, and he doesn't do it. Like, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. It's his responsibility to Tamar to actually give her his other son so that she can have descendants and be taken care of. He doesn't seem to blame his sons for their evil. Instead, he blames Tamar, and she can read the writing on the wall. She knows what's going on. She can tell that there's no way he's given him his third son, and so she plays a little trick on him. Have you heard the, How many of you have never heard this story before? It's a weird story. Well, what she does next is straight out of the soap opera. So she decides that she's going to disguise herself as a prostitute. She decides herself, disguises herself as a prostitute, and lo and behold, who walks by but Judah? This was her plan. And so she sort of seduces him away. I don't know if she got him drunk or if it was dark again, but he doesn't actually know who this is. 
So he sleeps with this woman, and yet he doesn't have any money on him. And she says, okay, how about you give me your staff, and whenever you bring me some money, I'll give it back to you in exchange. So Judah's like, fair enough, that's fine, no big deal. So he goes home. He comes back later on with the money, but he can't find her anywhere. And he thinks to himself, okay, I guess I'm down one staff, but at least I keep my cash. A little while later, it comes out that Tamar is pregnant. And of course, what does Judah do? He says, are you serious? What is wrong with you, you ungodly woman? You shall be put to death. And she says, oh, okay, cool. And by the way, the person who's responsible for this baby in my belly is the owner of this staff. Sucker! So she totally gets Judah, right? And Judah's like, oh my gosh, okay, you were more righteous than I. So the story on its own, first of all, it's scandalous, sad, pathetic, call it what you will, on the part of Judah, I mean. Um, And yet it only makes full sense in contrast to what happens next in Joseph's life. So Judah... This, this, this brother who is older, therefore should be more responsible, who is part of the, the, the crew that's still there in the land of Israel, acts with uh, no, no virtue, acts with no honesty, acts uh, wrongly, to put it simply. On, in contrast, Joseph, by this time, has been placed in the household of, anybody know the name of the guy that oversaw Joseph's household? Potiphar, lives in Potiphar's household. And he, uh, because the Lord is with him, has risen to a position of influence in Potiphar's household. And from his position of influence in Potiphar's household, Potiphar's household, he oversees quite a bit. And then one day, Potiphar's wife comes to him and notices that he is indeed a rugged and handsome fella, and she desires to be with him. And so she offers herself to him. He probably could get away with this. And yet, you know what he does? He runs away. How could I sin against God? How could I sin against Potiphar? No way I'm doing this. And he takes off. But she grabs hold of his shirt. So he has manifested himself to be above reproach. Unlike his older brother Judah, he will not give in to sexual temptation. Even though he's given every opportunity to do so, he resists. Back at the top. Only his time at the top wouldn't last very long. Because if you know the name of Potiphar, you probably know what happened next. Potiphar's wife lies. She goes to her husband and she says, that servant boy, Joseph, you trusted him with all your stuff, but he came in and tried to rape me. Look, as he was running away, I grabbed his coat as proof. Now, I think Potiphar knows that she's not telling the truth, which is why he doesn't put Joseph to death. But he has to, in some way, punish him because of the accusation. And so he throws him down into prison, back down to the bottom. And Joseph is in prison for a while. He actually, uh, well, we'll talk about how long it was later. He's in prison for a while. And while he's down there, once again, he shows himself a capable leader. And so the prison guard puts him in charge. So he's in charge, which is great, but he's in prison, which is not great. And one day there were two men sent down there, a cupbearer and a baker, personal servants of the king of Egypt himself, Pharaoh. Now, if you know the ancient world, you know that a cupbearer is a pretty important job. This isn't just somebody who says, here, I have bore a cup for you. This is somebody who drinks the things that the king has given to make sure that there's no poison in it. So pretty trusted guy. The baker, similar, a pretty important guy, the guy who cooks for the the king. And so they come down there and they're put in prison. We're not exactly sure why, but they do something wrong. And then they have these dreams. And they're like, oh, who's going to interpret the dreams? And Joseph's like, well, God can. What do you got? And they tell him the dream. And the cupbearer, I think, tells the dream first. And he says, so in my dream, there was this vine and it sprouted three branches and the branches gave grapes and I squeezed the grapes and made some wine and served it to Pharaoh and all was well. And Joseph said, oh, I know what your dream means. It means you're going to be down here for three more days and then you'll be restored to your former position and all will be well. 
And the baker's like, ooh, I had a dream. So in my dream, there was a basket on my head and there was a loaf of bread in it. And then these birds like came out of the sky and started eating the bread off the basket on my head. What's that mean? And he's like, well, what, what that means is, so actually in three days, you are going to be put to death and the birds are going to eat your flesh. Dang. Turns out both are true. A couple days later, the baker's brought up, put to death, birds eat his flesh. Likewise, Cutbearer brought up, restored to his former position. But the text specifically says, but he forgot about Joseph and Joseph stayed there. Like I said, top to bottom to top to bottom to top. So Joseph stays down there for a while until eventually the, um, yeah, I'm not ahead of myself too much. Eventually, Pharaoh himself has a dream, actually two. His two dreams are, in the first dream, he envisions these six, like, beefy cows, like, super healthy cattle. Uh, not six, seven. I don't know why I said six. Six plus one. That's why I wanted to, seven. Seven big cows. And then in the dream, after the seven big cows came seven really skinny cows, like me. And the seven skinny cows actually ate the seven big cows. End of dream. It's kind of bizarre. Has a second dream. There are seven very healthy grains, uh, heads of grain, grains of wheat, right? And these these seven healthy grains are there. And then after the seven healthy grains appear, seven unhealthy, like just not very, not very like life producing, just weak and, and just whatever, not good. They actually swallow up the healthy heads of grain, end of dream. And Pharaoh's like, what does it all mean? And so he asks all of the different people in his kingdom, who can interpret this dream for me? And nobody can figure out what it means. And then finally, the cupbearer's like, oh yeah, I had a dream one time. Ha! I remember this guy, Joseph, told me my dream. Maybe he can tell you yours. And so they pull Joseph up and says, can you interpret this dream? And what does Joseph say? No. Ha! But God can. Give it a shot. Let's see what we got. So then he tells him the dream. And Joseph's like, it's easy. Okay, both of the dreams have the same meaning. You're going to have seven years of produce, seven years of, of like high production. Your farms are going to produce food. It's going to be great. But it's going to be followed, swallowed up, if you will, by seven years of famine, where all of your animals are dying and none of your, none of your crops are producing resources, and it's going to be pretty ugly. Here's what you should do. You should actually put somebody in charge, somebody you trust, who's wise and honest and capable. You should put somebody in charge of the whole kingdom so that they can make sure and, and store up enough good resources during the years of plenty that when the years of famine come, you can provide for your people and they will owe you a great debt and you will be in a great position of power here in this land. And Pharaoh's like, that is a great idea. How about you? And so he puts him in charge of all of his stuff. And that concludes the first part of the story. Top to bottom to top to bottom to top. I mean, this is, a, again, a roller coaster ride if there ever was one. So, everybody with me? You still you good? All right. I'm not the storyteller my wife is, but I do my best. You know what I mean? She'd have all sorts of characters and motions, and it would be incredibly entertaining. And I told her, I was like, babe, you need to write out the Joseph story like only you can. And she was like, oh, that sounds like fun. So one of these days she will, and we'll have her tell it to you. So Joseph is in uh, Egypt. So far, which scene do you want to be a part of? Which one do you want to see? Interpreting Pharaoh's dream. dream. Whose face do you want to be looking at whenever he's like, oh, it's easy, and then lays it out there? Pharaoh's? Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, 
<laughs> no doubt. Yeah, okay. I like what they do with the faces of the brothers up here. I'd imagine they probably look something like that at that point. Any others so far? Okay, let's keep going. Second half of the dream, or second half of the story, is mostly about the brothers coming back and forth and visiting Joseph. So, yes. Thirty. Yeah, I was going to save that till later when we talk about how long it waited. But great question. Thirty, which means thirteen years. Again, long time. It sounds like bang, 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 but it's not bang, bang, bang. That's a lot of days. Sitting in prison. It's a lot of days waiting. Yes. Is that just a coincidence? Because there was the silence of 13 years with the Abraham experienced. Wow. Is that just a coincidence in numbers? I do not know. I do not know. Is that just a coincidence? Or is there some connection to there being 13 years in the Abraham story between the time whenever he was given the promise, but then they did the, hey, take Hagar, and then 13 years of silence before they hear anything else again? I don't know if it is or not. If there was a third 13, I'd be inclined to think it's not a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, well, touche. She said, I don't think anything's a coincidence where God's concerned. So maybe he just wants us to notice that, hey, this is just one more way in which he is indeed running the show. Fascinating. Okay. Huh. I'll keep thinking on that. So in this second part, he's 30 years old now. He's grown up. Um, you don't look the same when you're 30 that you did when you were 13. Can I get an amen? You know what I mean? Like, it's kind of nice. I remember, not to get too like weird and personal, but I remember, so I had a stepfather who was in my life from the ages of like nine to 18, and then he's pretty much gone. Um, I didn't see him for a long time. And then a couple years ago, my sisters got married, and he was there. First time I'd seen him. My wife has, had never met him before, and we've been married at the time, probably 11, 12 years. And so I go up to him, and I'm like, hey, <laughs> you know, what do you say, right? I'm not mad at him, so it's, it's, oh, it's okay. But I'm like, hey, and he just looks at me like, hey. I'm like, here... It's me, you know, it was just a fascinating experience. Like that experience helps me understand why what we are about to see actually happens. When I've read this story before, I would think to myself, seriously, you don't recognize your own brother? How can you not recognize your own brother? And the answer is because we look different. 17 years down the road, or 13 years down the road, from 17 to 30, I guess is what it was, not from 13 to 30, which even changing from 17 to 30 is probably, amen. So second part of the story, Joseph and his brothers. This is the part covered in Genesis chapters 42 through 50. First journey. So here's what happens. Jacob is with his sons. How many of them are there with him at this point in time? Eleven. Good guess. Yeah, ten, nine, eleven. There were ten, and then Benjamin came along. So eleven. So um, they are there in the land, and what's, like, remember, famine across the land, right? So they're, oh, man, we don't have any food. So Jacob's like, what's wrong with you bozos? Get over to Egypt. I hear somebody's got food. Go check it out. And so they go. And he sends, however, ten of them. Who does he keep back? Benjamin, yeah, who is now his favorite son. Benjamin and Joseph were the two sons that came from Rachel, his favorite wife. So he keeps Benjamin back because he's precious to him. Can't lose Benjamin. Already lost Joseph, can't lose Benjamin. Sends the other sons. And so they go to Egypt and they ask for food. Now, as soon as Joseph sees them, he recognizes them. But they don't recognize him, do they? No, because he looks different. He actually is speaking a different language. He's kind of sneaky. He was using a translator. So that they didn't think he understood what they were saying when they're just chatting amongst themselves, though he did. And so they come and he's like, are you serious? Wow, these are my brothers. But he's going to play his cards close and see where this is going to go. And he actually accuses them. You guys are spies. You've come here. You've come here 
to check out this land because you have a mind to come take it from us. And they're like, no, 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 we promise we're not. We're just 12 sons of a man living far away from here. One is gone, the other is home, and 10 of us are here. So they give him these details, right? He's pulling it out of them. And then Joseph's like, oh, interesting. So you have a brother, do you? I don't know if I believe you. You know what? I, don't, I, think, I, you know, I think you're lying. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you some food for a while. Go back home and eat, but you're going to leave one of your brothers here with me, and you're going to go home, and you're going to get this 12th son of your 12th brother of yours, Benjamin, and you're going to bring him back so that I can meet him and know that you're telling me the truth. And the brothers are like, oh, gosh, this is not going to go over well. But Simeon actually is taken by Joseph and kept and put in prison, and the others go along their way. Now, another thing that Joseph did was kind of sneaky was he actually, they had brought these gifts of silver to him as a gesture of of devotion. You know, thank you for being awesome. We want some food. And he puts the silver back in their sacks. So they go and they realize this on the way and they're thinking to themselves, what is going on? This is wild. So they go home and they say to Jacob, well, we have some food. We also have a problem. This guy thinks we're spies, doesn't believe that we're telling the truth. And so like he We kind of spilled the beans that we have another brother and he wants to meet the other brother just to know that we're not telling the truth. And Jacob, I picture Jacob as a relatively old man, just slaps them all in the face. You ever seen an old man slap his grown sons in the face? It's awkward, but it's funny at the same time. That's what I picture happening right now. He's, he's a little, he's like, are you, what's wrong with you? Why did you even tell them that you, why did he need to know that you have another brother? So, so first I lose Joseph. Are you now trying to put me in my grave by me losing Benjamin as well? You're not going. Forget it. You're not taking Benjamin. So some time goes by, and they're munching on this grain that Joseph has given them. And then eventually, though, they ran out of food. And and Jacob's like, all right, go get some more. And the brothers say, seriously, we cannot go without uh, Benjamin. It's not going to work. And Reuben says, you can take some of my family if anything happens to him. And Jacob's like, not going to work for me. Nope. And then Judah, remember Judah? Judah of the Judah and Tamar? Judah says... If I don't bring him back, you can take me instead. I will give my life for his. Don't forget this. Judah says, I will give my life for his. So Judah, somewhere in between Genesis 37 and the middle parts of the Genesis 40s, Judah has gone from a person who is incredibly selfish and only looks out for number one to a person who is willing to give his own life for the sake of what is valuable and loved. So Judah says, listen, take me instead. I will give my life somehow if anything happens to the boy. And so Jacob's like, go, go. I'm just going to go ahead and prepare myself now for you to come home and tell me Benjamin's dead. Just go. And so they go and they come back to Joseph. And once again, he sees them, recognizes them, but does not tell them who he is. He come, they come to him this, uh, this second time and um, he greets them and eats with them and provides for them. And they're like worried about the whole silver in the sack thing. And he's like, listen, your God gave you silver. I received your gifts. Don't worry about it. All is well. And then he sends them on their way. But you know what he does this time? He puts a silver cup in Benjamin's pack. He says to his people, before they go, I want you to take this silver goblet and put it in the youngest one's sack. It does. So they go, they take off, they carry in their bags. And then after they go off for a little while, Joseph says to his people, I want you to go and find them. And I want you to, to look through their bags because somebody has stolen a cup. And I want you to bring them back to me so that I might accuse them of their wrongdoing. So they go and they say, one of you stole a cup from the house of our master. And they're like, no. Wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me, wasn't me. And then eventually they go through all the bags and they find the silver cup in Benjamin's bag and say, you thief, 
You must come back and go to jail at once. So they all come back to Joseph. And Joseph says, how could you do this to me? They don't know he's Joseph yet. But anyway, Joseph says, how could you do this to me? This one will stay here in prison for this wrongdoing that he has done. And this is when Judah is actually at his best. He says to Joseph, take me instead. Let the boy go because it will be too much for my father. If you take him away, you will put him in his grave. Let me stand in his place. And Joseph goes away and he weeps and he comes back and he says, it is me. And they say, holy grainheads. You know what I mean? I don't know what they said. Something. They're just like scared stiff. Can you imagine? Whoa. It's you? It's me. But don't worry, because you had in mind to do evil, but God sent me ahead to deliver so that we might be taken care of. And they're just, I mean, I can't imagine the dissonance they're feeling in this particular moment, but nonetheless, Joseph is promising not to kill them. And he says, go home, get your father, get my father, bring him back. And so they do, they go home and they get Jacob and they get all the flocks and they say, father, we have great news. Not only is Benjamin going to be fine, but Joseph has been found. And he's like, Joseph has been found? Interesting. I'm a little surprised that he's, you know, alive. So they're like, oh yeah, by the way, actually we, anyway, he's alive. The point is he's alive. So let's go to Egypt. And they all go to Egypt and they move together and they get there and Joseph greets them and he gives them land. And then towards the end of the story, there's a couple of things that happen uh, in the last few chapters. Towards the end of the story, um, the, well, the family, first of all, there's a report about how Joseph's efforts to to collect all this grain actually work perfectly. And now the whole area, the whole kingdom is dependent upon the house of Pharaoh so that his power is stabilized, which may become a bad thing later on in the story when we get to Exodus. But at this point, what it shows is that just like God promised, those who bless the line of Abraham will themselves be blessed. Things are going well. Then at the very end, Jacob offers some blessings. This is not the first time we've seen this. We even recognize because of our study that the blessing in the ancient world was kind of a big deal. It's more than just, hey, I hope you have a good day. The blessing means something. And when a father blesses the son or the grandson, that blessing can't be overturned. When, when, when Isaac blessed Jacob, he, could, he had no blessing left for Esau. He couldn't just say, oh, I, ch- I didn't mean it for him. I meant it for you. No, once it's spoken, it's done. And so Jacob gives some blessings. One of the blessings he gives is to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh is the older of the two, and so Joseph leads them up there, and he puts Joseph's right hand on the older one, and his left hand on the younger one, and Jacob switches his hands. And Joseph's like, no, 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 let me, let me, no, you're wrong one. Let me move your hand back over here. And, and Jacob says, no, listen, I know what I'm doing. And he blesses the younger over the older, right up to the end. Strange, strange things. And then he offers this blessing on his sons, although it's not always what you might call a blessing. Open up an arena, we're going to read a little bit of this with you, of the blessing of the sons. We're not going to read all of it, but we'll read some of it. And uh, then I want to read the very last portion of the book. So in Genesis chapter 49, this is when Jacob blesses his sons. It says, then Jacob called for his sons and said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to your father Israel. We'll just read through the first four of these. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power, turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. You remember this? Reuben had slept with one of Jacob's servants. Well, now he receives the payment. 
Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Remember these guys? These are the guys that tricked Shechem into all circumcising themselves, and then they destroyed all the men in the area. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they, as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so, so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. So who's going to get the blessing? It's not the firstborn, Reuben. It's not the second or the thirdborn, Simeon and Levi. You would think that it wouldn't be Judah, given the Tamar incident, but we know that the Tamar incident is not the last word in his story. And so... Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. You know who he's talking about, right? Jesus. Now, immediately, the meaning is that the line of kings will come from the fourth son, Judah, the line of kings that stretches on to Jesus. If you turn to Matthew chapter 1, you don't have to right now, but the genealogy of Jesus comes straight through Judah and Tamar, comes straight out of this man. So Judah becomes the one who inherits the blessing. You can read the blessings on the rest of the sons later on. Then Jacob dies and is buried with his father. And fathers, and as you would imagine, after Jacob dies, the brothers have a whole nother round of worry. So we get that like you left us alive while dad was here, but now that dad's gone, what's it going to be? And I want to read you the closing section of the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father has left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they had committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their messengers came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And that is the end of the book of Genesis. Now, I want to pull some lessons out of Joseph's story. And... Uh, well, but first, I want to ask you the questions I told you I was going to ask you. So, just curious, I'm here from a couple of you. Having seen the whole story of Joseph, which scene would you want to be present for? When Joseph, when he reveals himself to his brothers? Okay, what would you have been watching? Who would you be looking at? Judah, okay. Judah's the one that 
Judah has a number of roles in the story. Judah's the one that said, let's sell him. Judah's also the one that eventually said, let me give my life for him. Okay, good, good. What else? Others, where would you be? Yes. I think I'd be in the prison with uh, Joseph. Okay. See how he's acting there. You'd hang out in prison with him. Yeah. Okay, yeah. See if he was singing songs at midnight like Paul later on. Okay. What else? Where would you be? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just sit there with him. Okay. Who would you be? Sam, who would you be in this story? Honestly? Uh-huh. The cupbearer, okay. Yeah, because he saw Joseph mm-hmm. interpret the dreams, and I wonder if he saw the birds eat the baker's flesh. Yeah. And went, whoa. Yeah. You know, like, I'm going to be all right. Uh-huh. Also, this guy's, like, you know, really connected with this guy. He is, yeah. Uh huh. Now, the forgetfulness, is that you too? And then he forgets, that's the thing. Oh, yeah, well, because I, I would imagine he's probably pretty, like, yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. He's good. Doesn't need that guy. Good. Yeah. Cupbearer. Okay. What else? Okay. I'd like to see Jacob's face when he found out Joseph was alive. Yeah. Good grief. Yeah. No doubt. Okay. <laughs> when Potiphar told his wife who the new ruler was, I like that. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Mary. She didn't sleep that night. Okay. Right, you don't want to be Tamar, but right on when she showed the staff. I like that. I like how you implicated Vicky too, and I just married, but Mary and Vicky both. Yeah, Tamar was one of, was one of Jesus's great 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 grandmas. So I mean that. It's interesting how many stories in the Old Testament show women in positions of, of injustice who brilliantly find ways to draw attention to the injustice. Re- regrettably, in certain respects, sure. But um, yeah, these, these, are the, these are the kind of, uh, the kind of um, sharp women that, that make up Jesus' line. So, all right, let's, um, let's move and talk about truth here and now. 727. So we may not end up um, covering all of this today, but we'll cover some of it. I think we see uh, three things from Jesus' story. If we don't cover uh, it, we'll pick it back up at the beginning of next week. Which remember, next week, Q&A, last week, bring your questions. Mark will be here too. Can't wait. These are actually the most, I love, you know, preparing the lessons and teaching through it. The Q&A are, are the most fun for me, so I look forward to that. What do we see when we look at Joseph's story? First thing I think we see is we see the strong but strange faithfulness of God. The strong but strange faithfulness of God. Let's define faithfulness together in a number of different ways. Uh, Let me start the sentence for you and you finish it. Faithfulness means God will never... What's that? Leave us. Leave us, yeah. Faithfulness means God will never... Let us down. Give up on us. What else? Break his promise. Fail. 
forget. Faithfulness means God will never forget us. What else? Abandon us. Anything else? It's pretty good. Faithfulness means that God will never, any of these things, never go back on his word, never break his promise. That's the one that resonates with me. If he says something, he'll do that thing. Put positively, let's put it this way. Faithfulness means that God will always bless us. us. What's that? Deliver. Deliver. Follow through. through. There you go. Come back to it again. Yes. Forgive. Forgive. Faithfulness means that God will always love. Rick, you look like you're about to say something. Be the victor. victor. Okay. Forgive. Forgive. Good. Provide. Provide. Like literally everything he says he will do. He will do, right? Yes. Faithfulness means that God will never say he's going to do one thing and do another. It means that he will always say he's going to do one thing and he will do that one thing. So God will always always be with us to bless. If I could summarize it in specifically the terms of Joseph's story, I would say God's faithfulness to Joseph means that he will always be with him to bless. I didn't read through the text, and so you didn't catch this line. But one of the things that you'll notice if you ever have an opportunity, I know it's kind of long, but if you ever have an opportunity to sit down and read all of Genesis in one sitting, take a few hours, one of the things that you'll notice is there are certain phrases that are focused at certain portions of the story. And as you walk through Genesis, this statement that the Lord was with a person sort of heats up and intensifies as you go. It wasn't said much about Abraham. It was true, but it wasn't said much. It was said a few more times about Jacob. It's said some 10, 12, 15 times about Joseph. And the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him. And so in this sense, specifically God's faithfulness to Joseph generally means he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Specifically, it means he will be with us to bless us. Same is true for us. Now, I say two things about his faithfulness here. I say, first of all, his faithfulness is strong. Why don't you, let's just make a list. We haven't utilized our whiteboard and our nice, fancy, super thick markers up here for a little while. So let's uh, think through, what are some of the obstacles? Articulate for me, what are some of the obstacles that had to be overcome in Joseph's life in order for God's promises to be fulfilled? His family, yeah. How would you characterize what his family did to him? This family was awful. Yeah, that's a pretty good characterization. They betrayed him. They lied about him. Yes, what else? Okay, all right, yeah. We're talking about the youngest son here. So socially, he is not the kind of person who you would expect to be the centerpiece of the story. Good, what else? Yeah. What's that? Oh, yeah. Jailbird. He's in prison. Good. Suffering. Suffering. Yeah. Let me add to this in a couple of different ways. There's not so much add to this, but let me articulate some of these in some other ways as well. Um, people uh, lied about him. We have that up here. That's one I wanted to make sure and mention. People misunderstood him. When he was sharing the dreams, he wasn't trying to be a punk. People um, took advantage of his integrity. Potiphar's wife. Adding some others to the list, famine probably ought to go on our list. And then the last one I want to mention is time. And we don't get much reports on the like mental state of Joseph. We know that he continued to trust, but there's no indication in the story that it was easy. Please don't forget me. 
he said to the cupbearer when he went back upstairs. Please don't forget me. He doesn't want to hang out down there, but he does. So God's faithfulness is strong, and by that I mean it will overcome whatever obstacles may come in its path. So y'all mentioned so many different things that God has promised to do. What are some of the obstacles? Gosh, the one that was mentioned twice, forgiveness. What are one of the obstacles to believing that God has forgiven us? Oh, you know, the memory of the things that we've done wrong. The fact that we know we still continue to do, other than what God would have us do. And yet, if God is faithful to forgive, then these obstacles can be overcome. Anybody in here imperfect? Yeah, like, welcome to the family. What that doesn't mean is that you are no longer an object of God's forgiveness in Christ. He promised he would forgive you. He promised. So what God says he will do, he will do every single time. Joseph's story is a perfect capstone to the book of Genesis because this truth that has resonated throughout Genesis hits home here. What God says he will do, he will do every time. So God's faithfulness is strong. That's the first sub-point on this. But the second thing I want to say is God's faithfulness is strange. Is it not? Is it, is it me or is it weird? Right up to the end, God is doing strange things. Right up to the end, he's blessing the younger son over the, over the older. I don't, to be honest, even understand quite why in this particular case. I think there's some reasons that become clear as the text goes on, actually. But I think within the context, part of the point is don't ever think that... that <laughs> Don't ever think you're just going to fully be able to predict what God is going to do next. Yes? Maybe he blessed the younger son first because as the younger son, he wanted the blessing and he ended up stealing it from his brother. But I mean, with, with um, yeah, in that case, I think, I think so with Jacob and Esau, with Ephraim and Manasseh. So is that what you're thinking of Jacob and Esau? Are you thinking of the others? Absolutely. What's funny to me is, okay, like, cool, this one, it happened, and it sort of moves the story forward, and then we come to the very end, and it's like, okay, all is well, everybody's got enough food, and then he does it again. Yeah, and I think part of the point is keep us out balance just a little bit. It's strange. There's actually a lot of part of this story that when I read, I think, why do it that way? When you're reading through Genesis, do you ever think, okay, God, why, why, not, why not something else? What, for instance, why give Joseph dreams about being great? Why not just send a prophet who can come tell the whole family at the same time, that kid's going to be great? Seems like it would have gone a lot better for Joseph. If you carry it on through into the New Testament, though, uh, with the birth of Christ, that uh, the only perfect uh, person ever on earth came from a whole line of very imperfect people. That's it's true. Good. It is true. Yeah. And not only... <laughs> He came from an imperfect line of people, and he won the victory by, you know, dying on a cross. It's pretty strange. Yeah. Yes. You know, I was thinking with Joseph, it's kind of a a miracle that his faith remains so strong through everything. I mean, like you said, the up and down, up and down, up and down. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm a... Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. And then after all of that, seeing his brothers, he wept and he was still, he still loved them and he, God transformed him He's a lovely guy. It's okay to say he's a lovely guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He did. He never pointed to himself. Yes, it's so true. Yes. Uh, do you know that Joseph, the, his story doesn't tell us that he put 
Mm -hmm. And I think his family taught him. Mm -hmm. And they brought it up through the family. But in all the other stories, it was very prevalent how many times they separated themselves and prayed. They prayed, yeah, that's but true. Not, yeah, yeah. I don't know what to make of that. Yeah, the, her point, if you didn't hear her, was that Joseph doesn't often withdraw and pray. You think about a story like Daniel. Prayer was such a big part of it. And we, we, for the most part, have to read between the lines to see some of these things. Yeah. So it's almost like with Joseph, what we don't necessarily get is the internal window on what's going on. What we do get is the impact, right? Like the different things that he's done. Yeah, yes. I was going to say even stranger is the book of Esther doesn't ever even mention God, let alone mention yep. praying yeah. like Daniel. You're not going to find the word God wants. That's one of the, yeah, I love that. It's weird, strange. Yeah, yes. I think uh, Joseph's life is an example that he was in a foreign culture mm-hmm. and he was able to survive mm-hmm. in that. Was the dream more acceptable in the court of Pharaoh because he had soothsayers and magicians mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And immediately everybody accepted that this interpretation where his brothers were more in sense because um, of the culture mm-hmm. of Egypt. They totally, there is a difference, yeah. Which begs the question, why, why, why give an Egypt-type communication in Israel? Or, you know, why, yeah. And I think part of it is God does strange things. The other part that's weird for me is, you mentioned Pharaoh's dream. So, so presumably, who gave Pharaoh this dream? God. So like, when could God have given Pharaoh this dream? Whenever he wanted. Right? And yet he waited a while. Why? Well, I don't know if I know the answer to the question because I don't know that I, I don't even necessarily want to. I think the point is God's faithfulness will appear strange to us. Period. Yes, Claire. Is there anything about the two boys that got the blessing, the young one got the blessing Excuse me. About Ephraim and Manasseh? There's not much at this point in the story. If you read on through the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you may find some things, but there's it's not a whole lot, to be honest, yeah. And there may be I feel like there's a detail that I'm forgetting that would actually be relevant. But one of the things I want to the point I want to make for right now is within the story, this doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of things that you looking at from within the story that don't make any sense. And as much of, so let me actually look at it. Let me, let me take, take what you're saying. Let's say we're able to back up and say, okay, now it makes sense. That's part of my point is that in the process of God being faithful to you, it doesn't always make sense. You could know, how do I put this on here? If you, if, if, if told the beginning, God promises to do these things, you would predict the end. If told the beginning of Joseph's story, God gave him a dream that his brothers would bow down before him. You would be able to predict the end. In the end, Joseph's brothers bowed down before him. But you'd never be able to predict the middle. And that's part of my point with this. Uh, I think, I think I, I, yeah, I think this is an important for us, point for us to see. If you want Genesis to be an encouragement to you, as you seek to believe in God's faithfulness in the middle of your strange. So the first thing we see is we see the strong but strange faithfulness of God. Second thing we see is we see the power of fully submitting to the sovereignty of God. The power, this is, this is, my, this is why I thought funny earlier, you're like, oh, the faithfulness and sovereignty. Indeed. Here you see the power of faithfully, or the power of fully submitting to the sovereignty of God. 
Let me give you a couple of points on this. First of all, Joseph's life was characterized by power to do certain things. Joseph was able to believe God when he was given a dream. He was able to believe God when he was given an interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph was able to resist temptation to be with Potiphar's wife, to exact revenge on his brothers. Joseph was able to wait years. And in the end, Joseph was able to forgive. Joseph's life is characterized by a certain power to do things that aren't easy to do. It's not easy to believe God. Amen? Not always, anyway. It's not easy to resist temptation, right? Not always, anyhow. It's not easy to wait on God's timing. I know you'll say amen to that. And it's not easy to forgive. So what I want you to notice is that Joseph demonstrates a capability to do a lot of things that we would all say we're supposed to do, but we all find them relatively difficult. Why? What was his secret? His secret is Genesis 50, 20. I know that you're doing these things for a certain purpose, but I trust that God is working in them for a larger purpose. That is the sovereignty of God. Don't forget what God's sovereignty means. It means only God rules the world. It means that he puts in motion successful plans because of his superior power. It means nothing can happen to you that God cannot redeem. That's what it means. Anything can be redeemed. Anything can be redeemed. Not everything happens for a reason, but anything can be redeemed. And I think Joseph's secret was believing that this was true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. His plan. But he's kind of waiting for his toddlers to come along, and we as human beings have to learn. We, we don't get it the first time. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you look at my life, everybody's, their lives in the Bible, there's a process taken from this young 17 year old who's kind of, you know, cocky and coming in. Sure. Yes, takes a long time to make a human, huh? Yeah. Takes a long time to make a Christian, you know? And yes, yes. One of the questions I've had is, why didn't Jacob bless Joseph? Instead of Ephraim and Manasseh? Uh, no, instead of Judah. Oh, to be the, the, the line? Yeah. I mean, you got me? Because God's faithfulness is strange. Joseph was above reproach. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a bit interesting that Judah is the one. I'll tell you why, actually, I think it is here in a second. What were you going to say? And he was also uh, Jacob's favorite. Mm-hmm. You'd think that'd play a part in it. Yeah, well, you'd think it would. Yeah, I think there is one detail in Judah's account that actually helps us, gives a little bit of a clue into why he becomes the one whose line would give us the Messiah. We'll come back to that in just a second. I like that thought. So last thing I want to say on the sovereignty piece, submitting to God's sovereignty is not a one-time decision. I felt a little worried as I thought through this, if in stating it, and I stated it exactly how I want to, we see in Joseph's life the power of fully submitting to the sovereignty of God. And I put that in that particular form, fully submit it, submitting, because I don't want to say, I don't want you to think I'm saying a life that is fully submitted to the sovereignty of God. I don't know if there is such a life. 
But the point is, every time Joseph encountered a situation where he could choose to submit to God's sovereignty or choose to not, he chose to do it. So recognize that the, God's sovereignty is not a problem. I mean, it's not like in question. It's not like, well, maybe he's going to be sovereign. No, it's like a fact. But our submitting to this sovereignty does not happen as a one-time decision. And so if you're looking at this story going, yeah, but I, I just, I know I'm not fully submitted to the sovereignty of God. Okay, Joseph submitted to the sovereignty of God one situation at a time. And the same thing will be true of us. You cannot escape the fact that you are where you currently are. Literally, like it's the one thing in life you cannot change. You cannot right now change where you are. You can't change where you are in this room. I mean, you could walk out, but that you will still have been in this room when I said this, right? You cannot change where you are physically, and you cannot change where you are in your life. You could have, but you can't anymore. You can't change where you currently are in life. All you can do is lie in life is from where you are, fully submit to God's sovereignty right now, and then fully submit to God's sovereignty again, and then fully submit to God's sovereignty again. And the more, I think it's true. I don't think this is just Joseph's story. I think this is illustrated throughout scripture. The more you contemplate and meditate and focus your mind on the fact that you serve a sovereign God, a God whose plan is so big that no matter what takes place, anything can be redeemed. And that what other people mean for evil and what just happens in the world that shouldn't happen, God intends for good. The more you think about that truth, I think I can safely say, the more you will become a person capable of believing God, even when God seems crazy of resisting temptation, even when you want it, of waiting on God, even when he takes forever, and of forgiving those who've hurt you, even when you'd rather seek revenge. I think that we see in Joseph the secret, the secret to a life of power. And that secret is fully submitting to the sovereignty of God. Third thing I think we say, and then I think I'm actually going to even save some time for questions. So I can make these points fairly quickly because they're cool, but they don't necessarily need to be elaborated on. Number three, we see the mission of God to rescue and bless the world through Jesus. We've camped out for the most part in these stories as they happened. Because I don't want you to miss the fact that there's these truths that sort of come to us from looking at their lives and their context. But I also don't want to miss the larger truth that, you know, this is the way Mark set up our entire study of Genesis starting last semester. Is that when we look at these stories, we're not just looking at these stories. It's almost like whenever you're watching something on TV, but you can see in the reflection of the screen something that's happening out here as well. It's like when you're looking at these stories, you can detect something else in the reflection right up there in the corner. I think there's maybe more to the story than this. And I think you see Jesus in a couple places in this story. First of all, I think you see Jesus. Which one do you want first? Which one should I go? We'll go Joseph first. You see Jesus in certain ways in the life of Joseph. Let me give you a quote from Timothy Keller. It says, Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Does that not sound like Jesus? Sure does. I also think you see Jesus in Judah. And this, I think, may be part of why Judah was chosen as the one who would be the ancestor of the Messiah. Because he's the one who said, take my life instead of his. Like Judah... Jesus offered his own life for the one needing rescue. Therefore, Judas shows himself transformed and thus a son worthy of the blessing. And it also tells us that if we look forward from the story, we'll catch an even greater sacrifice for you and me. That is the story of Joseph. 
questions. Yes. Yeah. Did you notice he said, I find it amazing that 400 years later, they actually remembered to take his bones back to the land of Israel. You notice it ends with Joseph being put in a coffin in Egypt. Yeah, that's not where he's supposed to lay, and it won't. He will lay in the land of his fathers. Okay. All right, let me, let's see. Let me go ahead and let you go today. I won't offer up a final prayer because we have one more week. Let me let you go. We're done for tonight. If you have a, a question, I'll hang tight up here for a couple of minutes. And come back next week with your questions. I'll bring Mark. We'll do Q&A. We'll have a lot of fun. He and I will make fun of each other, probably, because that tends to be what we do. And whichever one is higher in the standings at that point, probably the Cubs, he'll say something about that, so on and so forth. And we'll also, more importantly, talk about uh, what you're wrestling with with the book of Genesis and a life with God. See you guys in a week. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.